Welcome to episode two of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And we are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. And today's topic is submissions and acquisitions. Mm-hmm. And um, I guess before we dive into the topic this week, I figure we should give a little bit of an introduction to our actual history in publishing, because I realized that last week we didn't do that. Um, so just to reassure people that we're not pulling this all entirely out of our butts. <laughs> Why don't you start, Kelly? Sure. Um, I have been working in the publishing industry in one way or another for almost a decade now. Um, I started in New York City um, at a literary agency um, and kind of bounced around literary agencies for a while. Um, I got my start, as most people in the industry do, through internships. Um, After a couple of internships, I was hired on um, and worked as a literary agent's assistant. Um, From there, I moved to a different agency and I worked uh, in the foreign rights department. So I had a lot of experience with foreign rights, subrights, things like that. Um, after a couple of years of working in New York, um, my then boyfriend, now husband, uh, decided that he needed to move back to his home state of Minnesota, and I tricked him into letting me come along. And uh, when I moved to Minnesota, there is a wonderful and very vibrant publishing industry here, but it's a lot smaller than it is in New York. And so I did some freelance work um, on the side. I did some readers' reports um, and things like that on the side on a freelance basis for a little while while I worked other jobs and then uh, finally got my foot in the door in publishing once again. Uh, but this time on the publishing, the publisher side of things rather than the literary agency side of things. And uh, that's where I really started working more and more with contracts. Um, I have most recently made a move to another larger uh, publisher where I'm also working in contracts and also once again in foreign rights. So I've done a little bit of everything. I've done some editing. Oh, and I'm also... Um, doing some freelance editing on the side right now currently. Um, so I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on in that capacity too. So I've kind of done everything. <laughs> um, I've worked on the agency side. I've worked on the publisher side. I've done contracts. I've done sub rights. Um, you know, I've, I've done it all as they say. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess my history in publishing, uh, like Kelly, I also started as an intern at a literary agency. Um, in fact, Kelly is pretty much the person responsible for getting me into publishing in the first place. <laughs> um, before that, I had numerous other careers. Um, I worked, uh, my first job out of college was as a paralegal in a law firm. Uh, that didn't last very long. <laughs> and um, after that, I worked for a couple years in finance. Um, and during that time when I was working in finance is actually when I met Kelly, um, and we were both part of a writer's group in New York City. So um, that was when we met. And um, sometime in 2008, when the economy, you know, crashed, um, <laughs> Kelly convinced me to apply for an internship at uh, 
that was open at a, at Writer's House, which is a big literary agency. So I auditioned for that and got that. And um, I spent, uh, but I think the internship was about six months long, and I spent most of that time uh, writing readers' reports and editorial letters for the chairman of Writer's House, which is kind of where I sort of learned the ins and outs of publishing. And uh, shortly thereafter, I landed a position as an editorial assistant at one of the big five publishing houses. Um, and I've been there for, I was there for five years. And um, in 2013, my partner, who is a doctor, um, got matched in his residency um, at Wake Forest, which is down in North Carolina. Now, unlike Kelly, where she is, there is a thriving publishing community uh, in the Midwest, not quite so much in the part of North Carolina where I live at the moment. <laughs> um, so I decided to make the leap uh, from one side of the desk to the other and uh, decided to pursue publication in earnest as an author. Um, I've always written, but I hadn't really seriously pursued publication uh, while I was working as an editor. I, I, you know, having that emotional space divided between working on my author's books and working on my own just wasn't something that I could really do. So I took the opportunity when we moved to devote most of my creative time and energy to writing a book. So that's kind of where we are at the moment. <laughs> yeah. And so today we're going to be talking about submissions and acquisitions. Um, and we're actually very lucky because JJ has been on both sides of that fence <laughs> because of course, as she just mentioned, she, um, worked at a publishing house as an editor for a while. And now since then she has written and sold a book. Um, so she can give us really both sides of that process. Um, so why don't you start us off with a basic overview of what submissions an acquisition are. What does the agent do? What does the editor do? What does the author do? <laughs> How does that right. process work? Okay. Well, we'll start with the agent because that's probably the easiest. Um, well, this is obviously assuming that you are pr uh, pursuing a traditional publication deal as opposed to going indie or self-publishing. Um, but so you, if you're represented, uh, the agent will compile a list of editors that he or she thinks is the best fit for your manuscript. Um, so it, it, it sort of depends on the project and the agent, really, how many editors they'll send it out to at any given time. Um, some agents like to send widely to a list of 15 to 20 editors, and um, some like to keep their list kind of small, like five editors at a time, and kind of send out to another batch of five um, if rejections or passes come in. Uh, the strategy does depend on the project, on the relationships the editor, the agents and editors have. Um, so that's kind of what the edit, the agent does anyway, on the editor side of submission. Um, it's much, it's actually simpler than that. They get a submission from an agent, they read it, they decide whether or not they like it enough to try and buy it. And there you have it. I mean, it is actually much more complicated than that, but if we're going just like a basic overview, then mm -hmm. that's pretty much it. And what the writer uh, does on submission is eat a lot of ice cream, <laughs> suffer a lot of anxiety, uh, <laughs> develop anxiety if they didn't have anxiety before, which is kind of what happened to me. <laughs> like, I'm not an anxious person, and even more, I even know what the process is like. 
Um, and yet at the same time, it didn't prevent me from tearing out my hair or um, rewriting the lyrics to Stephen Sondheim's Agony to be about submission, um, which I did record myself singing. Um, and it is on the Pub Crawl blog, which I can link to. But um, and all oh, and Stacy Lee and Stephanie Garber, who are two other contributors to the blog, did write a blog post about submission as well, which we'll link to from the writer's perspective. And yeah, you, you do kind of sit there, you know, get fatter, <laughs> get more anxious. <laughs> That's really what the writer's job is, uh, during the submissions process. <laughs> so. Excellent. That sounds great. I bet <laughs> everyone's really excited to get to that stage of things. Oh yes. Um, you'll have to, maybe also in the show notes, you can put a list of your favorite ice cream so that, <laughs> so that those who go after you will have yeah. recommendations on hand. Um, so if that's the basic overview, then let's really kind of dive deeper um, and really examine the process more thoroughly. So let's start with acquisitions. So from the editor's point of view, what is happening? What are What's going on there? Okay, so s- submissions from the editor's point of view. So editors are getting submissions from agents all the time. You know, every day, every week, there's, depending on on how you know how senior you are and sort of what your workload is you can receive anything from 3 to 20 manuscripts a week um agents can differ um some just sort of cold pitch you um if they kind of send along the manuscript with kind of a pitch letter very much that's pretty much their query they write a query as well and they send it to you or they use the author's query and they kind of adjust it a little bit and send an email to the editor with the manuscript attached saying, I thought you were uh, the best editor to look at this project based on what you've worked on before, based on your reading tastes. Um, Often these sort of agent editor lunches a lot of writers keep hearing about during these lunches is often where the agent and editor can sort of talk shop. And really it's a, it's a time to talk about reading taste, Um, not just what they've worked on, but what they like to read, uh, the tropes and things that they like to read about and an agent can kind of mentally file that at the back of their head and think, you know, when they're looking through their client list, if their client's getting ready to submit something or if they're looking at queries coming in, they think, oh, I know this, this editor wants a project like this. So this would be perfect to send here. Mm-hmm. Um, some agents call before they send their manuscript. They'll call the editor and say, hey, I have this manuscript and they'll pitch it over the phone. Um, some do it in person over lunch. So it, it kind of all depends. Um, but you, an editor, depending on the time of year and who they are and what they like to acquire, can get anywhere from, like I said, five to 20 manuscripts a week. So that process then, once you receive all these submissions, you prioritize mostly on, you know, on the order they came in. You want to be as fair as possible to your reading list. Um, but some get moved up the pile because they've come in with offers attached. Um, so, you know, this is a priority read because, you know, so-and-so's already offered on it, or there's an auction set next week, or, you know, some of them, some manuscripts do kind of have a time element. And so those obviously get moved up to the pile quicker, or there's a manuscript you've had in your reading list for a while that someone else has already offered on. So obviously that gets pulled, you know, up to the top of the reading pile. So it's kind of this ever shifting, never ending 
list of of things that you have to read. (laughs) So what happens if you read and you decide it's not for you? Ah, the rejection part of it. Um, it's actually my, it was my least favorite part of this whole process. Although I used to joke that every part of publishing was my least favorite part. Um, that if I ever wrote a memoir about my time in publishing, it'd be called required drinking (laughs) or every step of this process is the worst. Accurate. (laughs) It is. Um, but if, if, I read something and I try to give, I used to try and give manuscripts a fair shake. Um, And this is when I learned very quickly that life is simply too short to finish absolutely everything. There's just not enough time to read to the end of absolutely everything. So I would always read a manuscript until it lost my interest. And that could depend. For some manuscripts, that would be 25 pages in. Some, it was all the way to the end. Some, it was honestly after the second paragraph like you kind of know at varying points in the reading process whether or not something is actually for you now the ones that aren't for you that you just didn't connect with on any sort of emotional levels those are the easiest rejections to make from an editorial standpoint it's essentially the it's not me or it's not you it's me kind of breakup letter that you're sending um and those are somewhat easier because you don't you're not really giving any critical feedback. It's just, you know, you have a different taste. It's just not for you. So those rejections were kind of always the easiest to write. Um, and then the second easiest rejections to write were any manuscripts that you felt strongly about, either you loved or you didn't love. Mm. Um, the ones now it, it would sound strange to say that I rejected manuscripts that I loved, but I had because there are multiple reasons you would turn down something that you love. You know, one of which being, I don't know how to publish this. Now, if this is a rejection that you're getting on submission, it, it's a little bit hard to unpack, but it actually just sort of means in the publishing house that I work, we have a history of doing these types of books and I'm not sure how I'm going to get the sales and marketing force to either change their ways or look at this manuscript differently, or I can't conceive of a way to properly package it to my publisher. Um, Those are all kind of the reasons bundled into when you say, I don't know how to publish this book. It doesn't mean that you love it any less. It just means that for various business reasons, honestly, that you don't know, you can't take it. Um, so those are kind of easier rejections, you know, that you love it because you can spend so much of that. Well, it's, it's still a rejection, but you can spend so much of that rejection email to the agent being like, I really, really love this. I'm sorry. I can't publish this. I really can't wait to see this in print because I bet somebody else will take it on. Um, and I have received my fair share of those rejections when, when I was on submission myself and it's definitely not personal. So if you're getting those rejections, it's really not, it's not them letting you down nicely. It really is just a business thing. It's a business Mm -hmm. decision. Um, and then the manuscripts I didn't like are also actually easier to reject as well. Not that I'm excoriating something, um, to the agent, because of course I would never do that. But if, if, it, if the manuscript didn't hold up in either plot or characterization, um, those are 
concrete critical points I can make in my rejection to help the agent um, if they choose to pass that along to their authors. Um, if I say, or if I think it's not saleable because of craft reasons, then I'll outline what those reasons are. And if I think there is potential, then maybe I'd ask for a revision and maybe I'll, you know, have the author and the agent revise the manuscript and send it back to me. So that's sort of the next tier of rejections in terms of ease of writing. Um, and then, and then they're the ones that you feel kind of, I hate to say it, indifferent about, you know, the, the ones that I, I did read all the way to the, to the end and the ones that I, there, there are no craft problems. The ones that are, you know, perfectly well-written with engaging characters and everything, but I just didn't love it. And it really you know, and this is the worst rejection to write. And it's also the worst rejection to receive the, it's not quite the, it's not for me because clearly it is for me in some, in some way because I finished it, but it just, I didn't love it enough to fight for it. And that's it. It, that is actually kind of personal because once you love a manuscript enough to try and take it to your editorial board, you know, there's a lot of emotional energy that's going to be invested in trying to just buy this project in the first place. And if you don't love it enough to keep fighting for it, then you know you have to pass on it. But there's still the most awful rejections to write. Because even though I wasn't pursuing publication at that time, it is, it's, you still feel like you're crushing someone's hopes and dreams. Like, yeah, so that's kind of sort of the reading aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, so what happens if you do love it? If you love it enough to fight for it, as you said? Yes. So then we bring it to editorial board. Um, I also wrote a post about that on Pub Crawl. Um, it's editorial board. I'm not entirely sure how it works across every imprint, but at least where I worked, um, we kind of, we had one big editorial board once a week mm -hmm. where ours were always on Thursdays. Yeah. For us, it was always on Wednesdays. Um, <laughs> so editorial board is all the editors who are looking to bring something up that week or looking to make an offer on something or looking for reads on something, at least on our side, that's when you get in. And you, you kind of fill out the sheet, at least we did. We fill out the, out the sheet of, this is the name of the project, this is a brief description of the project, this is the agent it's from, and uh, handed it to our editor-in-chief, and he would sort of compile an agenda list and sort of, you know, kind of, again, push the most time-sensitive projects to the top and go through them individually, and then everyone in editorial board talks about the project. Um publishing is often a business that's run by community. You know, it's not just the acquiring editor's opinion that matters. It's the opinion of everyone at Edboard. So your editor-in-chief, your publisher, often uh, the head of publicity is there, the head of marketing is there, the head of sales is there, foreign or sub rights directors mm -hmm. are there. They kind of get a sense of the project. Even if they haven't read it, they can kind of give you sort of a business perspective on these things. Um, so when you bring up a project at a board, this is sort of the first 
kind of in a microcosm test of seeing how this book might be received by a wider audience. Um, so if you bring up a project and Ed Board is lukewarm on it, it's going to be that much harder to try and buy it. Yeah. Um, and no, I, I amend that this might actually be the worst rejection to write. <laughs> I love it. I want to buy it. I can't buy it because the grownups in publishing didn't let me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, but if you bring it up and people do love it and people can, you get the general consensus that people are loving this project and see potential in it. That's when you move from, at least where I worked, the first half, which was kind of the editorial side, and then the second half, which was the money side of things. Crunching the numbers. Crunching the numbers. You have to run downstairs and, you know, drop a P&L. I may, this may have to be kind of a separate episode, but a P&L is a profit and loss statement um, with, that your that our chief financial officer came up with, and you plug in numbers. Um, you know, be, you expect to sell twenty five thousand copies, so you put in twenty five thousand copies at this price point, at this many pages. Um, where are we pulling all those numbers from? Our butts. <laughs> Uh, not entirely, but there, basically, there is a lot of research that goes into it. But sometimes yeah. it feels that way because, you know, at the end of the day. You just have to kind of go with your gut and say, I mean, the sort of quote, hard research you can do is look up comps Mm -hmm. or comparative titles. Um, you know, if you have this book and it's that you want to buy and it's similar to another book on the market, but obviously not too similar because you don't want them competitive with each other. Uh, but you want it similar to each other enough that you can see how their sales have done. Now, we don't have the hard numbers. We only have access to BookScan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we only have the hard numbers for the titles published in-house, in-house, but not, you know, say if you are an editor at, at Grand Central and you want to buy a book and one of the comp titles is a book published by Little Brown, you will not have, well, no, you would have Little Brown's numbers because they're all part of Hachette, so never mind. <laughs> <laughs> but in theory, the way that it works is BookScan um, is a sliver of the whole picture because a lot of the the information that they get is from people from bookstores or other places that self-report, and so not every bookstore reports numbers to BookScan. Um, you know, the most accurate way to find true sales numbers is to talk to the sales team at the publisher and have them look in their database and see exactly how many copies have sold. And you can only do that at your company. <laughs> you yes. can't, you can't call up another company's sales board and say, so, Hey, so what are your numbers? <laughs> how can you, you give them to me? Yeah. It's not at all like a breach of ethics or anything. <laughs> so um, that's why, yeah. <laughs> you know, BookScan is a wonderful tool, but it is an approximation. I've, and I've heard varying reports that it's accurate of only 70% of book sales, sometimes even only 30% of book scale book sales. Um, but you know, you only have book scan numbers. So when you go to Edboard with your comp titles and you want at least three or four comp titles for your book, you just not to say, well, partially to say, look, these books have been successful before, so we can publish a book like this. Mm-hmm. Um, but to, the more titles you have, the better picture you have of what the size of the market right. is. 
We could do like a whole podcast on comp titles and just how to select the right ones and how to, (laughs) you know, because there's a lot that goes into it. You don't necessarily want to pick, you know, the bestseller. You don't, you You don't want to compare everything to Twilight or Harry Potter. Like that's not going to get you anywhere. Um, You always want to exclude the outliers. So anything that's a runaway bestseller. So don't use Divergent. Don't use Twilight. Don't use Harry Potter. Don't use the Hunger Games. Um, and obviously you don't want to use the ones that haven't sold very well at all because that's not going to help your case. (laughs) Um, It's a fine art. It's a fine art. And this actually requires that the editor be extremely well read in the genre or category that they edit in. Um, they have to be extremely knowledgeable about the market. And in addition to doing your reading for work, you have to read outside of work. You have to read and just get a sense of, of the market outside so but that's more or less what edboard is if the grown-ups as my friends and i used to call them my other co-editors that were at my level we used to call the people giving us money the grown-ups but once they sign off on your PL, then you can go ahead go to the agent and make your offer now if you're the only one making an offer that's great because then the project will be yours mm-hmm. barring some other finer negotiation points um but you know and, you know, you want to be fair, too. So you make an offer, so the agent's obviously going to take that to any of the other editors who still have your project and say, look, we have an offer from this house. Are you guys interested in making one? You know, not. Depending on the interest that they get, they can either set an auction or a closing date or there are a number of ways to, to handle the actual money-making part of this or the offer part of submissions. But ultimately, it comes down to the project gets bought. Mm-hmm. So hooray, that's the hooray. end of the, the submissions process. At least, yeah. <laughs> From the editorial perspective, you've now acquired the project. So yay, you can start all the exciting part about editing and launching it and publication. But that's future episodes in this Publishing 101 series. So, <laughs> <laughs> so that is the editor side of things. But there is another person who is doing a lot of waiting and uh, consuming a lot of ice cream. (laughs) And that person is the author. And you've been there, so you can tell us exactly what we should expect when we're expecting a book deal. The first thing you should actually do when you go on submission is set boundaries with your agent. Um, Some people like to know real-time updates. You know, some authors prefer to know as soon as the agent hears. Um, or you get sort of monthly roundups, you know, kind of a status update once a month, once every two months, once every six weeks. Um, it, it, it all sort of depends. Some people just want to know right away and kind of be left out of their not knowing misery. And um, the others just kind of, are at like a need to know basis. I personally was as a need to know basis with kind of checking up every couple of weeks, um, just to see what, where things are. I mean, I was on submission in the summer and summer is notoriously slow. So in publishing. slow, so slow because yes. it's summer Friday. Yes. And <laughs> all the grown ups are out of town. Yeah. No one stays. No one who has any other options stays in New York for the summer. Um, and most of the time, the people who 
have other options are people with money and people with money are usually the people who are in charge of things. And so, yep. so everything slows down in the summer. Everything slows down. Um, so I, I kind of knew that as I went on submission in June, I probably wasn't going to hear anything solid until September. So the first couple months of being on submission were completely fine. Um, I started working on a couple of new writing projects. And honestly, that's the thing you should be doing. When you're on submission, you should be doing something else. You should be working on the next project. You should be finding a new hobby. I kid you not. Find a project, another project of writing. If you can't write, and I know some people, when they're waiting on news, they get too anxious and they actually can't write. I understand that. So find something else. Like learn to play the nose flute or something. The nose just like, flute. <laughs> just Do any of our listeners play the nose flute? I feel like we could set up some kind of connection somewhere. No. <laughs> <laughs> you really pulled that one out of uh, out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't know where the nose flute came from. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> but it, you should find something to keep yourself occupied. Otherwise, um, you will go mad waiting for something waiting for news of any stripe. And I think that's actually, or at least for me, worse than the rejections because having written every kind of rejection there is, I know exactly what the reasoning behind every rejection is. So it wasn't personal for me in that way, but just not knowing is awful. Yeah. Um, so the only way I could distract myself was to write something or, you know, take up another project or just anything else. So that's really what you should be expecting to do. Just the best thing to do is to put it out of your mind and focus your attention on something else. So that's what you should be expecting when you go on public, when you go on submission. <laughs> so after all that waiting, you have now mastered the nose flute and, and other hobbies and accomplishments besides. Um, and your agent finally gets in touch with you with some news and it is not the news that you want. It is a rejection, um, of any kind, whether, a a positive rejection, one with constructive feedback, or this isn't right for me or whatever, the end result is kind of the same in that it's a rejection that publisher isn't going to take your book. So what is that like? I mean, obviously it's upsetting, but (laughs) what happens then? Well, usually as I kind of stated before, agents send out submissions and rounds. Um, the first round is generally imprints at the big five. Um, that's, you know, they're usually the ones able to put up the most money. So usually they're the, the editors in the first round. Now there is something, there is an etiquette about submission. You cannot submit two editors in the same house, um, or the same imprint rather. Um, for example, like, um, as I had mentioned before, Grand Central and Little Brown are both imprints of Hachette. But you can submit to an editor at Grand Central and an editor at Little Brown. That's even though overall the money comes from the same pot, it it you know, each individual imprint has their own accounting and their own pot of money to draw from. So you can submit to editors in both imprints that way. You cannot and this is where an agent, again, would be helpful because they know where these distinctions are. For example, my forthcoming book is coming out from Thomas Dunn. Thomas Dunn 
is an imprint or sub-imprint of St. Martin's Press. So you can't submit to an editor at St. Martin's Press and an editor at Tom Dunn. It's just not... Just It conflicts because then the editors have to approach each other and they, one of them will have to back down. Um, and it, 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 again, it can depend. Like Tom Dunn has a completely different editorial staff from St. Martin's Press, but the money still comes from the same pot, so you cannot submit to two editors in the same imprint. So there's that kind of etiquette aspect of it. But, you know, your first round is generally going to be all of the big five imprint editors. And let's say... During that first round, they all come back and say, sorry, but no. It's not the end of the line for your manuscript. There are still other imprints or other publishing houses your agent can still submit them to. And in fact, there are plenty of mid-sized publishers that do fantastic. Like Scholastic technically isn't one of the big five publishers, but they do just fine. They did the Hunger Games and Harry Potter. So they're kind of <laughs> not exactly a fair example to use as, as a kind of quote, smaller publisher, but you know, they are, um, but you know, Scholastic, Houghton Mifflin, Harcourt, Chronicle, Sourcebooks. These are all very respectable mid-sized publishers. Candlewick has done some excellent books in the past. They do all of Kate, um, DiCamillo's books. Mm. Uh, I think, and, and Quirk Books is another kind of smaller publisher, and they do all of Ransom Riggs' books, The Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. Mm-hmm. So just because your book doesn't get picked up by the big five doesn't mean it's the end. So generally there's a second round and sometimes even a third round, depending on how deep your agent's contacts go. So, but, you know, let's say after all of that, your book has been on multiple submissions and everyone says, sorry, but no. At that point, hopefully during that time, you were working on another project. (laughs) So your agent can then go out with your next project to a different round. Mm -hmm. Um, Because there are many reasons a book just won't get bought. Market conditions is often the biggest one Mm -hmm. in the sort of post- Particularly, this this was felt especially in the post-Hunger Games dystopian fatigue. Mm-hmm. There was a big spike in dystopian projects being published. Now, this was partially because a lot of publishers were like, hey, the Hunger Games are doing well, so let's see if we can publish books like that. But it, it's also, there's something weird that often happens is that there's a cultural zeitgeist. Like, I remember reading mm-hmm. projects coming in and in on one week, they were all, I don't know, some sort of fantasy manuscript, and they all had dragons. Mm-hmm. And it, it wasn't like, and I knew this, you know, it wasn't like these authors all went out and colluded, we're all going to write this thing. But it, it, it is kind of weird. It often happens that yeah. it also comes in waves. And also because what's being published now, it doesn't really help to acquire things that are similar to what's being published now because publishing is always years out. In advance. You know, yeah. you're acquiring things now for 2017. And so if there's a book that's doing really well now, you don't want to necessarily acquire a similar project that won't be published for another year and a half, two years, because that doesn't make sense. So there really is some kind of like cultural trend where things just seem to sort of coalesce all at once. Yeah, that it's, it is the weird part. So this is why they always say don't write to the market because 
it will have the boat that boat will have sailed such a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it from acquisition to publication on average it's eighteen months. So I mean, for let's take for example my project, which I drafted for NaNoWriMo in twenty thirteen, and the book won't get published until fall of twenty sixteen. So. You know, that's that's a long time from writing it to publication. And this project was bought the end of 2014. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a long time. And that's very typical in publishing. I mean, obviously, there are other projects that have a more time-sensitive element that get crashed. Well, that's what we call it in publishing. It gets crashed. Um, it do, it's not launched at the big proper launch meeting to the sales force. Um, it's sort of a late addition to the season catalog. And um, you and also launch meetings are about a year in advance. But again, we'll go into that in <laughs> more detail in future episodes. Um, but, you know, so the reasons a manuscript might, quote, die on submission is generally the biggest factor is going to be market. Too many books like this, boat has sailed, doesn't stand out enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that your your book may not have some sort of Lazarus-like resurrection couple years down the line. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of people whose books went on submission a couple of years ago that didn't sell at that time, but now the market conditions have shifted. They've gone on submission with it again and it's been acquired. So, you know, don't ever give up hope. The, the people, if you're going to be in the publishing business, you have to be in it for the long haul. Mm-hmm. It's a long game. So, um, so obviously if your book on submission doesn't get bought, Hopefully you have another project on the back burner um, that is ready to go on submission. Mm-hmm. The other option you can do when a lot of people have also done this is self-publish. Um, the whole new adult as it is currently. The new adult category is, is sort of a contemporary romances set during the college years. And um, new adult is kind of awkward or at least that age group is very awkward because there's adult publishing and then there is children's publishing YA young adult is teen but that still falls under the auspices of children's publishing so most houses are dedicated children's imprints they do middle grade and young adults it's not that common to see an, an imprint that does both young adult and adult and some some do that some do that um, like for instance Saint Martin's Press my book is being published they do adult and young adult um, but that's not as common as the way most other imprints are structured so new adult falls into that weird category of is it adult or is it teen and if you kind at least in traditional publishing you have to make a decision you're going to age it up to make it fit more properly in the sort of adult romance or adult contemporary women's fiction shelves, or you're going to have to age it down to fit more properly into the teen fiction shelves. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, there are exceptions all over the place, but that usually only happens if you're already a New York Times bestseller. Right. And so, we can talk about yeah. genre in depth, too, for yeah. another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> more podcasts! Yay! But that actually happened to a lot of near uh, to new adult bestsellers um, when the authors self-published. The ones I can think of, Jamie McGuire's Beautiful Disaster. I actually remember seeing that one on submission. I read it for a different editor, and um, 
it was very good, but we had that discussion at Edboard, which was, is this adult or is this teen? And you could make the argument for either, but I think changing it to make it more adult or more teen would actually kind of remove something integral from that story. And clearly that was true because Jamie McGuire itself published it and it just took off and became a huge hit. So, you know, if, if traditional publishing declines to traditionally publish your manuscript, then you can always self publish it. Mm -hmm. Um, obviously nowadays, there's a lot more self-published authors out there, so there has to be a lot of work put into self-publishing to make it a quality product, um, to make it stand out. You probably want to hire publicists and marketers and freelance editors and cover designers. So, and, and, and some people like that kind of creative control, and some people like running themselves as small businesses, but the reason most of us writers choose traditional publishing deals is because we hate doing that stuff. Um, but you know, those are all sort of the options that will happen if your book doesn't get picked up. So, but what if it does, <laughs> what if it does though? What if you get that call or email or your agent shows up at your door? I don't know if that happens <laughs> or not, but maybe it does. Um, and because you have an offer you have with your agent. Yeah, I guess so. And where you live, if you, yeah. if you live in New York, that might, that last option might be more likely. Um, <laughs> but if you have, you've, your editor has taken it through the editorial board, they've crunched the numbers, everything looks good. They want your book and they have submitted an offer. Well, the first thing you should do is cry. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> I actually, although I didn't actually cry when I I got my offer, maybe because I was driving, mm. I was on my way to the Raleigh airport from where I live, which is 95 miles away because I was flying home for Christmas. Um, but no, to be completely honest, the first thing you should do is celebrate. Um, it's a big weight off your shoulders. Somebody wants to pay you money for your writing. And that's always a wonderful thing. Um, if you're extremely lucky, you may have multiple offers. Um, you may be fielding an offer from this house or that house. And, you know, that's where it gets kind of fun. They kind of sit and you talk to each editor and you kind of get a sense of how they're going to publish your book on what sort of editorial direction that they, or the editorial vision that they have for your book. Um, oh, those are always the worst ones. The ones that got away as an editor, like I'd sit and I'd be one of the, one of the authors on a project mm -hmm. and I talk to an author and ultimately they're like, no, well, we like the other editor better. And I'm just like, Poo, what? it's like dating. <laughs> it's like dating. It's like dating. It's awful. <laughs> really publishing is just full of such emotional highs and lows. It's very, very exhausting. Well, it mixes passion with business, which is just <laughs> really difficult <laughs> because I mean, everyone you talk to gets into this industry because they love books. They yes. love books. And that's why people work in publishing, but publishing, yeah, cause there's not a lot of monetary reward that comes with it. No, I mean, it's long hours and it's hard work and you are driven by your passion for what you do, but also what you do is a business and it, <laughs> it has to, you know, come with all that, all of that business stuff that is, uh, less, less joyful. 
And, you know, it causes a lot of heartbreak when the two don't really line up. So definitely celebrate, definitely celebrate. Um, at, At this point, I mean, depending on how savvy you are about the business, this point, the agent will be taking over the negotiation points with the publisher. Mm-hmm. Um, what sub rights are included in the deal, um, depending on how big the author is, sometimes the royalty splits can be negotiated. I mean, Kelly will talk about this in more depth next week. We're going to do a um, about podcast on, yeah, podcast on contracting. That's so exciting. <laughs> I, but promise I, I, I promise it won't be boring. This is very I important. Promise it we won't should be read your contracts. <laughs> <laughs> Don't be so excited. You sign away everything. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, but I, yes, your agent will be negotiating the finer points. Um, and there, you know, many, many different things can be negotiated during this point. But ultimately, at the end, it's final. Everyone says yes. You go and celebrate. You treat yourself to a nice dinner or trip to Europe. I don't know. Depends on the size of your advance, I guess. <laughs> um but definitely it's a time for celebration Mm -hmm. so reward yourself it's because it's always going to be a roller coaster of highs and emotional highs and lows Mm -hmm. so take the emotional highs when they come absolutely you earned it you earned it you did submission and here's the other thing submission is not often talked about on the blogosphere it's most people talk about querying. If you, if you research publication, most people will talk about querying, how to write a good query, you know, what agents do this, what agents do that, um, being in the quote query trenches, but no one really talks about what I've called the submission swamp because it's so individual. Um, and it's also this weird thing where you feel like you can't talk about your professional anxieties in a public space now that you are a quote pro writer or hopefully will be a pro writer like you're agented now you've leveled up (laughs) yeah you quote leveled up so talking about the insecurities and being transparent about the submission process is much harder than it is to be transparent about the querying process Mm -hmm. because everyone starts out querying yes everyone has to query but not everyone goes on submission Yes. And especially because there's always those overnight fairy tales or those fairy tales of those people who have an offer the next day and it's for a million (laughs) dollars. A million dollars. You know, those seven figure deals, at least the time when I was in publishing, they were kind of common. So rare, you guys. So rare. I will talk about it next week, but most writers have a day job. Yes, for good reasons. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, so it, at this point, too, it's really hard not to play the comparison game mm-hmm. when you're on submission. Um, it, it, it's, and the, uh, the absolute worst part about submission is, is this is the first part of the process where you realize how much is not in your control as yeah. an author. So much of this business is out of your control. And submission is kind of your first real taste of that. And at, you know, querying, 
because the agent doesn't make money until you make money, it's still a part it while it's still a business partnership, it's one that's all about love. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all about passion and everything. And then you get to submission and the relationship you have with your editor is obviously going to be one of passion as well, but it's also a business. At this point, real yeah. money is on the line. Yeah. So that kind of transition process between being a querying writer at, at still at the quote aspiring stage and being on submission is kind of a gulf. So you don't really talk about that on the blogosphere. And so at this point, if you're looking for emotional support, I highly suggest you also find friends who are on submission. Mm-hmm. Get a little support group going. Mm-hmm. You're going to need it. <laughs> I mean, if you didn't think you were going to need it like me, <laughs> um, you're going to just need someone who knows who's been there. Um, it's, it's such a unique position to be in too. Mm-hmm. This is the first time your, your book is going out to the wider world and there's stakes attached to it now. And the stakes are so much higher than when you're on within when you're querying. So I think finding friends who can help you through it, maybe buy some stock in Ben and Jerry's cause you're going to be consuming a lot of ice cream or, if you're on submission during the summer anyway, I don't know what you would be gorging yourself on in the winter, but like, you know, cookies, maybe pies. I don't know. (laughs) But that's it. That is submission and acquisitions. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously we can totally get into this more depth. So if you guys have any questions, you can always ask us about what part of the process in particular, and we'll try and expand upon that in later, uh, later podcasts. Mm -hmm. So we are going to leave that for the topic of the day. And we're going to do, um, a quick check-in on what we're reading and, um, enjoying right now. Well, I just bought Ray Carson's newest book, Walk on Earth, a Stranger, her her historical Western. Um, I haven't started it yet, but I did just buy it because it came out. We're recording on a Wednesday, and it came out yesterday. So I haven't started it yet, but I'm super excited. I loved her Girl of Fire and Thorns series. Mm-hmm. Um, also, this is a bit of a publishing insider gossip thing, but I was one of the editors it was sent to <laughs> when it was on submission. Ooh. Was that one of the ones you were talking about that you wanted and it slipped through your fingers? Yes. Oh, I wanted it and it and it got away. <laughs> oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. I mean, but I mean, she's got all this well-deserved success. So it's, they're wonderful books. Yes, I really, really love them. So I am excited about her newest, and I love that it's a western. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, one of the pub call contributors, Erin Bowman, she also wrote a Western. Again, this is that weird cultural zeitgeist thing, mm-hmm. you know, two Westerns published in the same month. So, you know, it, it, unless there's a hot, there's a greater sort of hive mind I'm not plugged into, but mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty much what I'm reading. Um, still working my way now. I'm on golden sun, the audiobook by Pierce Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm almost done with Sorcerer to the Crown, but I've been distracted by everything else that I'm consuming lately, which we'll get to in our other mm-hmm. segment later. Yeah, in a minute. In a minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, um, I 
have just finished, it, I got it in from the library and I just finished The Martian um, by Andy Weir, which mm, is... What did so, you think? It's so good, you guys. <laughs> it's, it's so good. It's one of those things that it is exactly things that I love, like compiled into a book. I really love Lone Heroes. Um, all the examples that I can think of off the top of my head right now are from like TV and film, but like... Um, John McClane from Die Hard is yes. the best. And like even Jack Bauer from 24, like any of those like lone man alone needs to uh, conquer unimaginable odds, you know, to pull through to the other side and survive and do crazy things. Um, I love those stories. I would actually really love a lone hero that was female because as I was just going through that all in my head, I realized I couldn't think of one necessarily. So, um, if anyone's listening to this and you know of a story like that about a lone hero overcoming incredible odds and, and having amazing skill sets like Jason Bourne is another one. Um, anybody who can do crazy things out in the world on their own themselves against everybody else as a woman I want to read that book, so send it to me. Um, (laughs) But The Martian is that lone hero in space. And it is, you know, uh, it's so great. It's so, it's so, so, so great. I know that some people have said that the science-y bits are a little bit um, too much for them. Um, But I loved it. I thought it was, you know, I mean, it's really science-y. I don't know if the science is accurate. <laughs> Cause, cause, I, think, I think it's fairly accurate. I think I it think, is too. I think he's actually an engineer or something mm-hmm. like that, or, or if his family members are in- engineers. Um, I know that there was a lot of research. Research that went into it. I'd be yeah. willing. I mean, it sounded legit. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> not that, not that I'm any judge. Um, but I thought it was, it was really just so compelling. So riveting. Um, if you're a person who likes to read books straight through from start to finish, then carve yourself out a good chunk of time, um, and just sit down with that one. Cause that was great. And then of course, um, today I started finally queen of shadows Yay. by Sarah J. Moss came through from the library. Uh, I was number 64 on the list, uh, and it is here. And, and so I'm just started that, um, I'm only a couple chapters in, but I'm very excited. I love those books. Yay, they're they're really really good. Um, a, another tip for those people who find the sciency bits kind of dry in The Martian. Um, I also have that book on audio. I'm a huge consumer of audiobooks, just to let people know, uh, partially because my day job allows me to listen to them. I um, am able to to listen to audiobooks and do my day job at the same time because my day job involves numbers and financial things, and uh, you know they work to different parts of my brain, but. Um, the sciencey bits and also the the narrator is, is funny um mm-hmm. and also because the main character is funny like he's a very funny voice he's a very funny outlook on life despite the fact that Ian, he's you know stranded on mars um and facing imminent starvation and you know the next mission's not supposed to get there in three years and i think there's like a direct quote is i'm gonna science the shit out of this and you know it, it's and the narrator is, is really really good um, and the dry sciency bits, um, when read in a sort of a kind of a sarcastic voice like that is, mm-hmm. can make it easier to digest than sort of reading it on the page, which can come across like a textbook. Sometimes. Yeah. I thought it was really accessible the way it was done. I, I mean, I loved it. I don't know what anyone else thought. I thought it was a great book. I, I yeah. was so psyched, um, about it. It's and I'm just, also really excited about the movie. 
I am too. And to be perfectly honest, that's how I found out about the book. I saw a trailer for the movie and I thought, oh my God, this movie is my jam. It is exactly all the things that I love. And then I was talking about it with someone and they were like, you know, that was a book, right? And I was like, oh my God, because, um, you have to read the book first. I mean, obviously. So, uh, and I'm glad I did. The book was excellent and I am excited about the movie. So yeah. So that's what we're, what we're reading. Um, JJ, do you have any other recommendations that you want to uh, share with anyone? We're going to keep it brief. We're going to keep it brief. We're not going to go try off. And keep this brief. We I have swear. this. We have the same one. We have the same thing to recommend to everybody. So yes. Um, well, last week I recommended a German language musical. This week I'll be recommending an English language musical. This is the soundtrack to Hamilton, uh, the newest musical by Lin Manuel Miranda, who also did In the Heights. NPR as of as of today the the album hasn't dropped yet it's supposed to come out September 25th and it's killing me it comes out two days and I don't have it yet but as of today NPR is streaming the entire thing and it has been on a loop for me ever since it was put up I have cried my way through this album at least 80 million times three times at work. I don't care. It's so good. It's so good. I can't even begin to describe you how, how, how good this, this musical is. I haven't been this obsessed or, or not. I mean, I, I'm regularly obsessed with musicals, so scratch that. <laughs> um, but it gave me kind of the same feelings I got when I listened to Spring Awakening mm-hmm. for the first time, um, or like Jesus Christ Superstar, which is another one I really love. Um, but just, it's, it's so just, the music's amazing. The book is amazing. The lyrics are amazing. Just everything about Hamilton is so good. So. Really exciting, innovating, innovative um, things about it too. I mean, it's a it's a musical about Alexander Hamilton. Um, so yes. it's that's what it's about. Uh, but it the music is very contemporary. So um, hip hop, rap battles, pop music. Um, R&B ballads. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he does use a lot of different musical styles and genres. Um, Jonathan Groff plays King George III, and he mm-hmm. kind of sings this, like, 60s Brit pop song. Mm-hmm. Um, he's very, very good at giving kind of each different character a different, not a different musical style per character per se, but he's really good at using sort of the entire history of both pop, hip-hop, rock, and musical theater history to just give this amazing score. It, it, it's it's so fantastic. Yeah. And, um, and what I also love is that this is a project, like this is when he was on vacation from working on In the Heights, mm-hmm. and he just picked up a biography of Alexander Hamilton at the airport and read it and was like, has anyone made a musical about this? No? Okay, then I will. <laughs> Oh, and it, it, and it, there's so much passion behind this, and you can you can tell it comes out. He really cares about this subject, mm-hmm. um, and you think it sounds really boring because the last musical about the founding fathers I found incredibly boring. Although my partner will kill me for saying that because he loves 1776, but <laughs> I do not. Um, it's it's just it's so good. If you have a hair trigger tear response like mm-hmm. I do, I don't recommend listening to this in a public place unless you're okay about crying in public. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
And another thing that's really great about the musical is that um, the cast, the the musical was cast without regard to race. So there, it's a very, very diverse cast. um, And it doesn't matter, you know, the actors who are playing um, Aaron Burr, George Washington, and Thomas Jefferson, uh, none of them are white. Um, You know, and so it's... I think was played by someone white is King George. Mm-hmm. I think every other character or actor in this musical, at least on the cast album, is a person of color. Mm-hmm. So Lin-Manuel Miranda is Puerto Rican. Um, Aaron Burr is Leslie Odom Jr. and he's black. George Washington is black. So is Thomas Jefferson. Mm-hmm. Um, the Schuyler sisters, uh, Hamilton's wife, is played by Philippa Sue, who's half Chinese, and Angelica Schuyler is played, I think, by another uh, by another African American. So the whole cast is mostly not white people, and I think it makes it great because mm-hmm. it, it just kind of makes the statement about who Americans are. It's not just these stuffy white people. And there's actually a line in this musical where Hamilton and General Lafayette are like, immigrants, we get the job done. And it and it's definitely true because Hamilton was born in the Caribbean and immigrated to the United States. So it's, it's just, it's so good. I mean, even if you don't care about history, just the music itself is, is great. It's very catchy. Um, this is stuff you can dance to. It's stuff you can sing to. It's just stuff you can listen to. It's just really, really, really good. Mm-hmm. Go listen to it. It's streaming yes. on NPR. It's fantastic. Uh, yes, highly, highly recommended. By the time this podcast goes up, it's probably available to buy. At least it will be available to buy on iTunes. So it does come out September 25th. So I highly recommend. You don't even have to listen to it on NPR. Just just take my recommendation. Just buy it anyway. <laughs> yeah so that's it for what we're recommending and oh are we working on anything any creative endeavors um i did successfully uh bake my sourdough bread for those who were listening last time um yeah it came out okay i don't i actually don't really love the method that i used so i'm gonna tweak it and try again uh but it was bread and it was sour and i made it so that was pretty great um i am actually right now yeah in terms of creative endeavors um I don't know how creative this is necessarily, but I am taking a copywriting class um, through, not copywriting, I'm sorry, copy editing. (laughs) (laughs) Copy editing class uh, through Media Bistro right now online um, because I have gotten really lax in terms of like just the day-to-day typing that I do and the things that I'm writing for work and for things like that. so much of it is just like time, 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 just get it out, get it out, get it out. And I've become really sloppy over the last couple of years. And, um, although all that grammatical knowledge is kind of rattling around in my head, I figured a refresher course would be a good idea. And so (laughs) I'm actually doing that right now and really enjoying it. It's really great. Um, and it's my first experience with taking a course through Media Bistro. 
Um, mm. And I'm doing one that's entirely online, entirely at your own pace. So there's videos and lesson plans and things like that. And I just download the materials uh, when I have the time to sit down and do it. So I can kind of do it on my own time. Um, and it's been really great. Highly recommend. That's good. Yeah. I mean, I loathe copy editing anything, but <laughs> it's kind of a, a misconception some people have about what editors do. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Ideally, and, I would always be developmentally editing, um, but, you know, you got to... I mean, there's definitely... I mean, I, I highly... I ad- extremely admire all copy editors, and the reason I don't like copy editing is simply I'm really bad at details. I just, it does take a very detail oriented person, um, to sort of sit down and copy edit a manuscript because for me, I will simply correct typos in my own head, even though the typo on the page, I won't see it. Um, because my mind will just assume that it's, it's correct or skipped words, which is my biggest thing. I often will leave words out when I'm typing because I'm either typing too fast or whatever. And I won't see it if I proofread it. I'll, my mind will just stick it right back in. And the actual only time I notice typos or drop words is when I'm reading something out loud. That's kind of the only time I ever, it ever kind of comes to me. Um, well, currently, I'm still, again, working on my middle grade. Um, that's going on for quite a long time. But my other creative endeavor right now is I am working on redesigning my website one of my hobbies um, is coding web design, and I know that sounds kind of weird, but I kind of find web design soothing. <laughs> um, so it, it works a part of my brain that is simultaneously creative and analytical. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I tend to sort of want to redesign something or recode my website fairly periodically, as as a as a means of getting of scratching that creative itch to so to speak so that's more or less what I'm working on right now creatively so all right I think that's it for this week unless we have any further closing things that we want to say uh, I promise that was all we were going to gush about Hamilton yeah but <laughs> yeah but um it's just yeah it's just so good it's so good so trust yeah. us. <laughs> all right well that's it for this week next week we'll be covering uh contracts mm-hmm. so that's that's kelly's wheelhouse <laughs> yeah and you're gonna want to listen because i promise it really isn't boring it really isn't boring it isn't it isn't boring and it's incredibly useful and very important mm-hmm. so definitely stay tuned for the contracts episode next week as always if you want more please subscribe via itunes stitcher podcast pickle or your podcast provider of choice also if you like us please rate and review when you get a chance as it helps other listeners find the podcast if you want more pub crawl goodness you can go to our website publishingcrawl.com where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading writing and the publishing industry you can also follow us on twitter at pub crawl blog as well as on tumblr facebook and instagram at publishing crawl you can follow me, JJ, at SJ Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, or my website at sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at Bookish Chick, on Twitter or Instagram. 
Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, a publishing crawl contributor and author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. See you guys next week. I'm your host, S.J. Jones, called J.J., and I am an author and erstwhile editor. And I'm your co-host, Kelly Riley. No. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's not my name anymore. No, more boofers. Yay. (laughs)